0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Millennium Live. My name is Kaylee Allen, and I'm so excited to be joined today by Chester Elton. Chester has spent the last two decades helping clients engage their employees in organizational strategy, vision, and values. Chester provides real solutions for leaders looking to build culture, manage change, and drive innovation. His work is supported by research with more than a million working adults across the globe, revealing the proven secrets behind high-performance cultures and teams. Chester is co-founder of The Culture Works, a global training company and author of multiple award-winning number one New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. His books include All In, The Carrot Principle, and The Best Team Wins, His books have been translated into 30 languages and have sold more than 1.5 million copies. He has been called fascinating by Fortune and creative and refreshing by the New York Times. Ellen has appeared on NBC's Today Show, CBS 60 Minutes, and is often quoted in Fast Company, Newsweek, and The Wall Street Journal. We at Millennium are so excited to have Chester keynote, our upcoming CHRO Assembly, on August 16th to 17th. I'm sure a lot of you listeners are already signed up and ready to attend. Today, I want to dive into Chester's life and career, as well as his most recent book, Anxiety at Work. Our keynote topic coming up next month is all about anxiety at work, building resilience and psychological safety. So without further ado, Chester, how are you today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here.
1: Awesome. Well, we're really happy to have you. So, I want to just start at the beginning. Tell me about your early life. Tell me about your first, you know, your childhood, your teenage years. <laughs> kind of what's made you who you are today. Uh,
0: well, that's uh, that's quite the question, Kaylee. Thank you. Um, yeah, listen, I I grew up in Canada. I was born in Edmonton, Alberta really grew up in vancouver british columbia raised in a ridiculously happy household you know my mom and dad were married for 65 years uh, one of the great love stories of of all time i have uh, four older brothers uh, that are all r- much more remarkable th- than i am and we're all still great friends and our wives are great friends and our kids are great friends so i really was blessed with a very very happy and, and engaged childhood and and i think You know, when you look at the people that have really impacted your life, for me, there's no question that it was my mom and dad, and particularly to my father, you know, my dad was just um, a happy guy, you know, he made people around him feel good, he loved to have fun, he loved to work hard. Uh, we, we would often joke that our dad t- taught us how to enjoy life and our mom taught us how to work hard, uh, but they were, they were both that way, you know, they were wonderful entertainers, my dad had a great voice, my mother was quite an accomplished pianist, they'd put on concerts uh, all over the place, um, so yeah, I, I had a very, a very happy childhood, and the older I get, the more I realize that that is not often the case. And so I, I feel very, very fortunate and very blessed to have, you know, John Dalton Elton and Irene Tanner Elton as, as, as my parents. And over and above that, that I've got four amazing brothers. You know, we all looked out for each other. We stuck up for each other. And, uh, and so that's the childhood thing. Growing up in Canada for me was, was wonderful as well. You know, um, Vancouver, British Columbia, if you've never been there, is, is one of the most beautiful cities on the planet you know. So we would often go down to the ocean and walk along the seawall, and uh, yeah, um, over and above all of that, I grew up in very much a family of faith, you know, that was very much about being kind, uh, being grateful, and being of service. I served a mission for my church uh, for two years in Italy when I was 19 years old. Another seminal moment for me. I learned a a language, a culture. I, you know, solidified my core values, uh, my belief in in, in my heavenly father. And, um, I always say, look, you, you know, you can volunteer in my church. I'm a, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, and you volunteer, they can send you anyway, a- a, you know, anywhere in the world, Kaylee. And I always laugh that when, when you open that letter and it says you have to spend two years of your life in Southern Italy, it's kind of when, you know, Jesus loves you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was, it was beyond amazing. The food was amazing. The language was fun. The history, which I love was everywhere. And, um, and again, um, a very seminal. Moment um, in 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 my development and learning how to serve and get along with people and appreciate other cultures.
1: I think that's very telling. Um, we've chatted a couple times here now, and you do have just a larger than life personality, very happy, positive, uplifting, and it makes a lot of sense now that you're describing your parents and the home that you grew up in. So you serve your mission in Southern Italy, which gorgeous and you come back to the states or excuse me back to canada and are ready to start your career how did you get started and what brought you to where you are right now professionally
0: yeah so my father uh, was in radio uh quite a performer and then he went into management so our family grew up you know reading the ratings and figuring out you know what were the top shows and so on and my dad, while he was on the talent side, he would always say, Look, nothing happens in business till somebody sells somebody something. You will learn how to sell. And so we all went into sales. Even my oldest brother, who, who's the lawyer, uh, if you're a lawyer, you know that it's all about selling, right? You gotta convince the jury or the client or whatever. So I I went into media sales. Um, right after my mission, I um my first year of university was at the University of British Columbia. And after my mission, I decided to go down to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where I immediately had a minor in Italian, which really helped as far as graduating faster. And that's where I, I met my my lovely wife, uh, Heidi. So I, I went into media sales and I, I worked in, in Detroit and, and New York, uh, did a, a short stint up in Hartford, Connecticut, came back to New York and just loved that whole idea of solving people's problems and bringing them a product and helping them uh, with their businesses and so on. I, I got into management um, and managing sales teams and so on. Where I, it, it turned out that I ended up doing what I do with my wonderful partner and, and friend, Adrian Gostick, is I loved selling media time in New York. It was it was great. I just didn't feel like it was really changing the world. You know, I, I you say, well, I, I sold a spot in the Super Bowl in Columbus, Ohio. And I get that that helps a company- you know, sell their products and makes families. But yeah, I mean, you got to really connect the dots way down the line, right? Yeah. So my, my mother called me and um, my uh, great uncle uh, was a guy named Obert Clark Tanner. And he had a wonderful company. It's still a wonderful company in Salt Lake City, Utah, called the OC Tanner Company. And it was all about recognition. And they were looking for a regional sales manager in New Jersey. And my mother called me and, you will never meet my mother. She's long gone, but she was very emphatic about life. And I remember picking up the phone saying, you know, Chester Elton Blair Television, you know, can I help you? And she said, Chester, it's your mom. Listen, I just talked to your uh, uncle over. He's got this fabulous little company in Salt Lake City and they need a salesman. Well, I said, you're the best little salesman that anybody could ever want. So I want you to talk to him and I want you to get the job. It's in New Jersey. Just don't mess around, get the job. And I remember taking a breath and saying, I'm doing great, mom. How are you doing? <laughs> and she goes, don't get smart with me. Get the job. <laughs> so being an obedient son, I got the job. And um, my sales territory was in New Jersey. Well, fast forward, I, I started to sell um, service award programs and recognition programs. And I loved it because, you know, people, when they put in all that effort and all that loyalty that they get recognized for that, to me, it was just a wonderful way to, you know, make a difference in people's lives. Well, I did a project for the pharmaceutical company here in New Jersey. And if you know anything about New Jersey, it's lousy with pharma companies, right? And we did it with a consulting firm. So they did all the consulting around employee engagement, and then we would execute their recognition strategy, which was great. And I loved that partnership because it was expanding our products and services. And I thought going deeper right into the whole employee experience. And I asked the consultant, I said, well, tell me a little bit more about your company. Now, this is years ago, and the internet was just starting to kind of take hold. In fact, the internet was basically, you'd you'd go to the website, and it had a phone number for you to call, right? It was like your company logo and a phone number. And he said, well, if you really want to know who we are, let me send you a book. And it's written by like our senior VP of international business. And it'll lay out our whole strategy and our, our core values and our beliefs around creating you know, employee engagement. I said, well, that's brilliant. And he overnighted it to me. It was beautiful. It had a little bookmark. It was signed. And I called our CEO at the time, uh, Kent Murdoch. And I said, Kent, I told him the story. He said, this is genius. You know, if we became the thought leaders in our industry around employee recognition, then my job would be so much easier. You know, people would call me because we're the experts and experts publish. Nobody's written the definitive book on employee recognition. We should write the book. And he goes, "Ooh, I love that idea write the book. And it was really interesting because as a salesman, I, I, I backed, I said, I don't think you understood what I just said. <laughs> uh, you should write the book. And then I would benefit from this book. And this is again, uh, Kaylee, that seminal moment, right? He said, you know what, Chester, you're a smart guy, figure it out. And he hung up. And I went, ah, geez, <laughs> you know, so then well, i well, I, I'm not a dumb guy. And let's figure it out. So for about a year, Kaylee, I played with ideas and titles and stuff that we did and symbolism and so on when Kent called me back and he said I've, I've been thinking about your book I've hired a writer like I know you're not a writer but you've got all these great ideas so I've hired a writer his name is Adrian Gostick introduce yourself and write the book well it turns out that Adrian was born in England but grew up in in Canada so we had that Canadian thing going and we both love hockey and you know that's all you need to know about Canadians is who's your team right so we started to play around with ideas and so on. And we wrote a book called Managing with Carrots. So I wear orange every day because carrots are oranges. And I think it's a, a positive color. And we we, we had the cover designed, we found a publisher and we dropped it on Kent's desk. So this is about a year and a half after we'd had the conversation. And he put this big smile on his face, he says, I love being CEO, man. You say stuff and it just happens, <laughs> you know, which I thought was great. And that was the first of, now we've written, you know, Anxiety at Work is our 14th book. We've sold wow. more uh, one and a half million copies, 30 languages. Adrian and I have presented in over 50 countries around the world. And it's just been an amazing ride. A, a lot of hard work, you know, writing a book is not a simple thing. And Adrian is the writer and he is brilliant. And we've developed this really wonderful cadence on, on how we collaborate together, what's the next topic, what's the next idea, how do we market it, how do we, you know, how do we make a difference. And, um, yeah, so that's how we ended up where, where we are today.
1: So, as a team, you've written 14 books. Let's go back to the beginning. I know I want to dive into your most recent book, but let's go back to the beginning. Can you talk a little bit more about The Carrot Principle, what that means? Why did you start with that and kind of go from there?
0: Sure. Well, The Carrot Principle, by far, our best-selling book uh, to date. Um, It was like our sixth book or or seventh book, I think. You know, we wrote um, Managing with Carrots, and then we wrote The 24 Carrot Manager, and then we wrote A Carrot a Day. And then we uh, uh, vote, uh, wrote um, uh, The Invisible Employee, right? Uh, how carrots bring out the best in all your employees. It was always like a carrot theme. And then we got a phone call from Simon & Schuster, like out of the blue. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and, and I'd, I'd done some work in, in China and we I ended up, there was a photo of me on the front page of the business section saying, who the heck is Chester Elton, right? Sort of like these these american gurus in asia that nobody in america has ever heard of <laughs> that was me right because we'd, we'd have these great crowds in in china and it was all kinds of fun stuff and, and books in china are very cheap so everybody would get a copy we sold tens of thousands of copies anyway one of the publishers there uh, or editors uh called me up and he said hey you know i'm with simon and schuster have you ever heard of simon and schuster that's kind of like saying have you ever heard of the New York Yankees you know <laughs>
1: exactly
0: you know and and at first I thought it was like one of my brothers punking me you know and I went <laughs> Yeah I've heard of uh... he says would would you like to publish with Simon and Schuster like, I'm like like seriously and he goes yeah I, listen I know you live in New Jersey I live, come on in the city let's let's talk so I called Adrian and I said you're not going to believe this <laughs> We got a call from Simon and Schuster. They're interesting in publishing for us. What, what do you think? He goes, oh, it's been one of my dreams, you know, to be with a big publisher. So anyway, long story short, we ended up writing The Carrot Principle for them. And it was the first book where we took all our case studies and went on. And we married it with really in-depth data, mm-hmm. you know, with our friends at Willis Towers Watson. We had a great database to draw from, and which has since grown to over a million. Engagement surveys and a lot of interviews and stuff that we've done along the way over the last, you know, 20 years. And It was a big hit. Uh, in fact, we did two versions of it. We did an international version. They were both New York Times bestsellers, hit you know the all the bestseller lists. And that was really our tipping point. you know our 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 other books had done well. You know, you don't know what you don't know. You know, most Harvard Business School books, they sell like five, six thousand copies. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, that's not very many. Well, that's a lot. you know, I mean, for business books, right? plus the uh, the shelf life of a business book is fairly short, you know, two, three, maybe four years. With the exception of you know, like um, Seven Habits and Good to Great, which you know, there's always outliers, right? So, yeah, we sold hundreds of thousands of copies of 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 those books, and we even created like the Daily Carrot Principle, you know, a little uh, reference book, and so on. And then we wrote The Orange Revolution, which was all about teamwork. And then we actually um, parted ways with uh, with O.C. Tanner. There was a change in leadership. We didn't fit very well anymore, even though we. Created a lot of interesting and I think you know fairly innovative things for the company. Then the new CEO just didn't really value as much what we did, he was, which which is fine. I mean, he's the CEO, right? He gets to make the call. So we went out on our own, and that was um, that was 12 years ago. Uh, Adrian and I formed our own company called The Culture Works, and um, and we've written since then, you know, all in uh, the best team wins. We self-published a book called What Motivates Me: Leading with Gratitude, which is our favorite book, um, and then Anxiety at Work, which is probably our most important book as far as uh, dealing with anxiety. And just to sum it up, uh, Kaylee, because I'm rambling here a little bit, is our work, is is the umbrella is culture. You know, whether it's employee recognition or leadership or teamwork uh, or a- anxiety in the workplace, it's all about how do you create a great culture, what we call an all-in culture. Right? Where people believe what they do matters, they make a difference. And when they make a difference, somebody noticed it and celebrated it, right? The, the gratitude piece. And what's been fascinating for us is the common thread through all of that work has always been gratitude. And it's, it's been fascinating to, to watch you know, the best leaders led with gratitude, the best teams cheered for each other, the best cultures made sure they were very inclusive, that people had a voice, that it was safe to speak up. And then, of course, during the pandemic, our publisher called us, uh, Harper Business, fabulous partners, said, look, you've got time, Uh, what are you working on? And Adrian was actually working with his son, Anthony, on this idea with dealing with anxiety. And we would both had children that had gone through severe anxiety. So it was very personal. And then, of course, How can you build a great team or a great culture or a great company if you don't address mental health? And the number one mental health issue in the workplace is anxiety. So fast forward from our first book, you know, Managing with Carrots to Anxiety at Work. And it's always been under that umbrella of creating these these great cultures.
1: Can you explain to our listeners what is a carrot? (laughs) <laughs> Beyond the vegetable? What is a carrot? To it's a,
0: yeah, it's a tuber, actually. It's not a vegetable. At, at any rate, we, we, we digress. So the whole idea of the carrot principle is very simple premise. Somebody on your team does something great, you celebrate it. You give them the metaphorical carrot, the reward. You know, the opposite of the carrot would be the stick, right? Do you manage with carrots or do you manage with, manage with sticks? And our, our research and all the studies that we've shown show that If you lead with more carrots and less sticks, you get more engaged, happy employees that are more innovative, that take care of your customers better and and produce superior results. So the carrot is the reward, right? And uh, more carrots, less sticks.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess our carrot fans can appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners have read the book or many of them have and understand that principle so you were talking about how you and adrian went off on your own and formed the culture works what was it like to go off on your own after you being with the company for a long time
0: yeah it was really scary uh because we didn't want we didn't want to leave uh i'd been there for 19 years uh i i, I lived and breathed and bled uh, OC Tanner, Adrian had been there nine years. We had great jobs. Uh, you know, we were well supported. We just kind of lost our, our 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 purpose and our direction, and there was a bunch of stuff. But and and we probably could have managed that exit better. <laughs> you know, yeah. you you look back and you go, ah, oh, we probably could have been a little more, you know, attuned to what was what was going on. And we we thought that even though we were leaving, that because we'd written seven books. You know, the, the carrot library that OC Tanner owned. Uh, we didn't own that, right? Because it was a work for hire, which was kind of a sticking point. At some point, we wanted to own our work. And uh, the company made it very clear that we would never own our work, that the company would always own it. And so that was a bit of a sticking point. Over and above all that, we still thought we would have a relationship with them. And we were sorely mistaken. <laughs> they, they couldn't get us out of the building fast enough. We did sign kind of a non-compete for like a year. And, and that was really hard we thought that we had made a difference that we were important and the message we got is look you're a cog in the machine Mm -hmm. and we'll miss you but make no mistake about it we're going to do great without you so we wish you well and see you you know which was really hard on us emotionally Mm -hmm. right and then you know now it's eat what you kill we didn't have a regular paycheck we didn't have you know, we got a percentage of the royalties that the, the company uh, got from the publisher. We didn't get all of it. Um, we got a percentage of our speaking fees. We didn't get our speaking fees. Having said all that, it was a very rich package. We had no complaints on income. And we had health care and <laughs> all that other stuff, right? Expense accounts and so on. So leaving was really hard. Uh, and so we scrambled, you know, to get computers and phones and uh, reach out to our speaking clients, because that clearly was going to be our primary uh, revenue stream. And then, you know, how are we going to publish? We don't own any of, you know, we have done this for 12 years with OC Tanner. And then to realize that you don't own any of it, you can speak to it. You can't train, you can't consult. It's it's all owned by OC Tanner, and which we appreciate because we, we want people to respect our IP as well, right? So the mad dash was on, and the first book we published after after we left was All In again with Simon and Schuster, and did very very well. And it was about culture. That was our shift from simply employee recognition to culture, and our our All In you know roadmap and and so on. And so that thankfully, you know, we we got a nice advance on that, and and it gave us our own content that then we could grow and develop and teach it. So yeah, but those uh, that first couple of years, it was it was. Um, it was pretty scary you know cuz as you know most startups fail
1: yeah i can imagine how scary it is. and now you've been around for what 12 years with the culture works
0: yeah we left in the, in 2010
1: okay yep so right on a, right around 12 years and you mentioned going from employee recognition to culture and i kind of want to start breaking down what that looks like for you and the work that you do, since we wanna talk to our CHRO audience. So let's talk a little bit about, in your 12 years at The Culture Works, in your 12 years looking at and researching uh, more so the culture of organizations, what have you found to be, let's say the top three issues that organizations are facing right now, or just over that 12 year span?
0: Yeah, oh, this will be old news to all the CHROs that are are listening. Um, Almost always, with rare exceptions, uh, when you look at engagement surveys, when it comes to the question, I feel like I'm valued in my work and recognized for my hard work, or the famous Gallup question, I've been recognized by a leader or supervisor in the last seven days for my work. It's almost always near the bottom. So there's been a continual need for employees to feel valued and recognized more carrots, right? So that's the, that's a perennial issue. Right now, without question, it's it's helping your employees deal with uh, uncertainty and ambiguity. You know when you think of the last two and a half, three years, my gosh, you know, I mean, certainly the pandemic is top of the hit parade there. Then you think of the the social unrest and and you think of, you know just job security food uh, security diversity uh, in in the workplace you know uh, de and i and the inclusion and and then on top of that you know right when you think you're kind of getting through all of that war breaks out in, in, in europe and supply chains are, are interrupted and then you know if you're if you're here in the states in in particular you know the, the supreme court rulings and then the political unrest and the division in the in the in the country and and on and on and on Right. It's just like right when you think you've sort of got some stability, something comes and whacks you upside the head. So it's it's dealing with all this uncertainty and ambiguity. And then the number one result of that is mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, if I don't know how the company's doing or where we're going or how I fit, how am I doing? Do I have a future here? Well, you we spend a lot of time trying to figure out do I stay? Or do I go, you know, and and um, and so that that responsibility of the employee well-being, I mean, falls right in the responsibility of CHROs. Right. So how are we creating a, a culture where we're communicating on a regular basis and we're answering those questions? Here's how we're doing. Here's where we're going. Here's how you fit. Here's how you're doing. And you have a future here is is becoming overwhelming in a lot of in a lot of ways because the residual impact is mental health now the reason we wrote anxiety at work really was because of anthony Gostick, adrian's son you know if you look at our books it's always Gostick and elton right it's you know lennon and mccartney was kind of the goal right um and it's that way on every book except anxiety at work where it's 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 gostic and elton and Gostick because it was anthony that said you know do you guys, are you guys going to write about mental health and anxiety in particular? And, you know, our generation, we go, yeah, no, we don't. We don't talk about that. What are you nuts? You know, we don't talk about Bruno you'll be perceived as weak and you can't hack it. You know, our generation, the, the, the answer to mental health was well, just suck it up. You know, turn that frown upside down, you know, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game. I mean, You know, when I played sports and somebody got knocked out during the game, everybody laughed and you'd give them smelling salts and send them back in, even if they didn't. And even if you were pretty sure they didn't know where they were because it was funny. You know, well, it's not funny, although if you're my generation, still kind of funny. So he'd say, look, you guys don't ever talk about it because it's 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 verboten. He said, my generation, we start every conversation with that. Hey, how are you doing? So so we said, "Okay, fine, you know, we'll take a look. Well, then the numbers were shocking, you know, that it was by far the number one issue for employees that they would never talk about because of all the things that my generation put in place. Well, what do you mean? You can't handle it. I told you this is going to be a high pressure job. What do you mean you can't work 80 hours a week? You know, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean you need a mental health day? What the hell is that? You know, so it was really interesting. So I'll, I'll give you a little quiz here, Kaylee. What percent of employees do you think feel safe talking to their manager about mental health?
1: Oof, you asked me this one last week. Um, <laughs> let's see if I remember the answer here. I want to say it was 7%.
0: Pretty close. It's a little more than that, but not much. It's 10%. Oh, okay.
1: that was close.
0: So, yeah. So, so flip, it, flip it around, right? 90% of employees won't talk to their boss about mental health. And of course, the answer is, or the question is, why? And it's because of the stigma, you know, the stigma of being passed over for the next promotion, not, you know, not getting the raise, not getting the the plum assignment. And it's so interesting because it was very, it's very, very much generational, right? I mean, there's always outliers and exceptions. So we we, we took a look and we said, okay, so pre-pandemic overall, how many people said they suffered from anxiety at work? Like an anxiety disorder. In other words, Everybody gets anxious. That's you know, that can be a passing thing. Anxious to the point where it impedes your ability to do your job. Right. So pre-pandemic, it was about 18%. So about one in five. And you go, well, that's still pretty high. You get to the middle of the pandemic, it jumped to 30. Now that's everybody, 30%. So I said, well, okay, so generationally, what does that look like? Workers in their 20s, it jumped up to 42%. 42%. Yeah, I mean you're getting close to half your your, you know, these are your future leaders, right? And 40%, four and ten, are saying, yeah, I've got some kind of anxiety disorder, but I won't talk about it, you know, because it's not safe. And so we, we would we would joke about it. We'd say, gosh, if if 42% of your employees in their in their 20s showed up with a broken leg, you'd go, oh my gosh, we got it what what's what's causing all our employees to break their legs mm-hmm. i mean we would be on that in a new york minute when it's mental health it's kind of like ooh, ha yeah um do we have a helpline can we give everybody uh, a meditation app would that help <laughs> you know when when in reality you're, you're saying hey this is a real issue we we've, we've got to learn how to talk about it right now the last you know, a little data point that I'll give you that I think is fascinating is 50% of millennials and 75%, think about that number, mm-hmm. 75% of Gen Z say they have left a job due to a mental health issue. Wow. Yeah. So let me get this straight. So rather than talk to your boss about it, it's easier for you to quit, take some time off and just go find another job. Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah. I go, really? Isn't that fascinating? You know, in an age where everybody's saying, look, when you find top talent, you got to figure out how to keep them, mm-hmm. right? And yet we won't talk about this. It's, there's a huge disconnect, right? So the question is, of course, what do we do about it? What, what's, your, what's your advice on this, Kaylee? So this is your generation, right? How do, you, how do you deal with mental health? How do you work it out in the, in the workplace? You've got friends, you've got family. I'm sure we all do, right? I've dealt with mental health. So how, how do you deal with it?
1: You know, Chester, I don't have a good answer for you on that. I feel like what I've seen you know really aligns with what you're talking about, where out of that ten or that ninety percent of employees don't feel comfortable talking to management about their you know mental struggles, or anxieties at work. That's what I've seen. I I cannot name a time when anyone that I work with has gone to their, whether it be their manager or someone above them or HR and has said, you know, I'm struggling with X, with my mental health. What can we do about it? I've never heard an account of anyone that I work with and I'm a younger millennial go to anyone about that.
0: Yeah. So, and, and this is the point, right? People struggle with it and they have no idea what to do about it because it's not safe. So for the CHROs out there, and I'm sure there are many that say, okay, we we get it and we're putting all these programs in in place and so on. Where it gets really tough is the line manager, right? That says, hey, you've given me these crushing quotas, whether it's production or sales or innovation, whatever it is, right? And over and above all of that, now you want me to be a counselor, a father confessor, you know, the, the, the bartender that everybody confesses to, he goes, you know, I'm not qualified. And so the answer to that is, yeah. And by the way, everybody knows that everybody knows you're not qualified. They know that you can't write a prescription. They want you to do one thing and one thing only. And what do you think that is, Katie? If, if you finally had enough courage to go talk to your supervisor about you're overwhelmed, you're overloaded, the ambiguity has gotten to you and, and your anxiety is becoming a disorder. When you go to talk to your boss, what do you want them to do more than anything?
1: I feel like I would want them to listen more than exactly. anything—a so listening ear.
0: And I know that sounds so simple, and yet for most line managers, that is really scary. Because after I listen, then what do I do? And it's so interesting that the numbers show that employees that have a manager that will simply listen are less likely to burn out and less likely to leave their job. So, so, so what,
1: what? Doing anything beyond listening,
0: if just listening. listening yeah. Listening. Hey, let's talk about that. Great today. Tell me what's going on. Now, here's what's really interesting. So we say, okay, so how do, how do we get there? How do we create a safe enough environment that that people will, will talk to you about mental health? So we say, well, first and foremost, you start with psychological safety, make it safe for people to talk about stuff at work. You know, an idea that's maybe a little out there, or talk about a mistake they made and and they need help fixing it, right? So you say, okay, we we psychological safety. Now, emotional safety is the goal. So you take psychological safety, you raise the bar and you say emotional safety. So, you know, if you were working for me and I'd say, look, I know that Kaylee's struggling. How how do I how do I even start the conversation? So we talked to a lot of uh, counselors and 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 so on and said, uh, how do you do it? They said language is really important. So what you want to do is you don't want to say, hey, Kaylee, you're struggling with mental health. I can tell you're anxious, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's like the worst thing you can do, because they're be, oh, no, you're kidding. I'm like I boss. I got this. You know, the idea is, is that you start with language that is I've noticed. Hey, Kaylee, I've noticed that, you know, you're never late and you're starting to show up late. Hey, Kaylee, I've noticed that. You always participate, and you're, you're kind of. Is there any? Is there anything I can do to help? And it's always about work. I've noticed that. I've noticed that because when I say I've noticed, you interpret that as I care, and once you know your boss cares, it changes everything, right? Exactly. Now you, yeah, that, exactly. And so we say, look, with, with with managers and supervisors and and CHROs out there, say, look, there's three things you need to do. First, you need to normalize the conversation around mental health. Again, if forty-two percent of your workers showed up with a broken leg, you would address it. I know, I know you would, right? So normalize the conversation. Anxiety, mental health—it's a normal thing—and then destigmatize it. Don't worry; this won't impact you getting a promotion. It won't impact uh, you getting a raise. And then the third one is empathize. So back to our work around leadership. If you'd asked me five years ago, what are the attributes of a great leader? I'd say, look, great communicator, motivator, gets things done, you know, the standard. Right now, there's only one characteristic that matters, and it's empathy. If if I don't think you care about me, it's game over. If I don't think you care about me as a person, I'm not going to care about you, the business, our customers, or anything else, because I'm just a cog in the wheel, and you'll do great without me. I'm replaceable. And isn't it interesting? So often we're shocked that these wonderful high performers leave when we thought they were really happy. I'll never forget having a a conversation with a boss of mine. I said, hey, you know, we need to start doing this and this and this. This is what the research shows. And he goes, I don't understand why you're so unhappy. I pay you so well. And I went, yeah, no, you do pay me well. And I really appreciate that. Have you read any of our books? (laughs) It's 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 all about more than a paycheck, right? So that idea of normalize, destigmatize, and and empathize becomes a bit of a, a clarion call, if you will, for leaders to say, look, we'll we'll create a psychologically safe workplace that we can evolve to, you know, being emotionally safe so that when you talk about it, we can say, hey, look, I don't know exactly what it is you're going through. I know that feeling of being helpless i know that feeling about being out of control i know that feeling about being abandoned right and one of the biggest messages that any organization whether it's from the you know, c suite down to the shift supervisor is then when it comes to mental health that you're not alone this is really an important message that you are not alone you can talk about it come to us we've we've got resources we've got tools because the biggest Mistake that we make as people, as humans, is something goes wrong and we pull back. I'll handle this on my own. You know, I always love the uh, posters at restaurants say, by the way, if you're choking on something, don't go off by yourself, (laughs) right? Because it's really hard to give yourself the Heimlich maneuver, right? You need to be with people if you're struggling. And it's the same with mental health. If you're struggling with mental health, get good people around you, do not go off by yourself. Because that's when you go down a rabbit hole and it gets really bad. Does that make sense?
1: No, that makes so much sense. And I feel like when you talk about up at the top, destigmatizing and empathizing with employees, that makes sense in theory to me. I'm wondering what you've seen or how you know chros have implemented that successfully. Like, do you have any um, you know, success story you can talk about where from the top down they've made that environment? You know, it makes sense, but how do you do it, like practically?
0: Yes, an excellent question because you say, okay, how do I start? Well, when your top leaders start sharing their stories about anxiety, it gives everybody else permission and makes it safe for them to share their stories too. I'll give you a perfect example. A wonderful tech company on the West Coast uh, did a, a retreat with their top salespeople you know, and this is a billion-dollar sales organization, multi-billion-dollar actually. And the leader of the group is amazing. You know, we we won't mention names or companies to respect their privacy. She, Kaylee, she has this voice. Just she talks to you, and the, your whole world slows down and calms down. You ever have a friend like that? You know, look. I I don't just read your grocery list. It's just your voice just calms everybody down. Right? And her support team would say, Oh, yeah, if we've got a really angry customer, we put her on the line. It's magic. You know, and I said, Well, if you were to meet her, Kaylee, I mean, you would never think that she had an anxious moment in her life. The most capable, smart, engaging, put together person, you know, the, the poster child for this is success, right? Well, we talked about, you know, leading with gratitude and we took a section and we talked about anxiety. Well, she said, Gosh, I've really enjoyed this. It was with maybe 25 leaders in, in, um, Napa Valley, it was fabulous. I'd like to do an online fireside and and talk about leading with gratitude. And her support staff said, actually, what you want to talk about is anxiety. She goes, really? I just kind of want to keep it really positive. And they said, yeah, you can do that. You really need to talk about anxiety. This is, you know, we are in these super high pressure jobs. So we put together what we call the run of show. Here's what we're going to talk about. You know, we rehearsed some stuff. And they said, you need to share your story. She goes, really? I said, yeah. Now, the senior executive, incredibly accomplished. And of course, one of her fears was, gee, if I admit to that, is it going to hurt my brand? Mm -hmm. Is it going to hurt my position in the company? Will I be perceived as weak? Anyway, she talked about the fact that, you know, she got the Sunday night ickies like everybody else, you know, when there was a lot of pressure at work. In fact, she formed a um, potluck dinner club with her sister-in-law. Who lived in the neighborhood, they'd invite all the people that were thin. Yeah, six o'clock Sunday night, ah, you know, <laughs> Monday morning is looming, right? And they would share their stories and their food. And they said it was tremendous help. She talked that, about, yeah, isn't that a great idea? And then she'd say, Um, I've got to go in and report the numbers. You don't think I'm anxious about that? I mean, yeah, we're doing well now, but hey, there were years when we weren't doing very well. Mm-hmm. You don't think I was anxious about that? So she started to share her stories, and then what she how she managed it she loves to run you know she'd uh, make sure she got in her exercise she'd make sure that she got in her sleep she made sure that she had people that she could talk to and on and on so here's what was so wonderful kaylee because we did we did two firesides and as she'd start to share her story the chat box would blow up thank you so much you are so brave this is so wonderful It gives us permission to share our stories. So not only did it not hurt her leadership brand, it enhanced it in ways she could have never imagined. Courageous, brave, empathetic, you know, cares about people. So you want to know where to start? Get your CEO to talk about her anxiety. Get your head of, you know, research and development. Because we've all got them. We all do. You know, Maybe not to the the point where we're curled up in a ball in the corner, you know, sucking our thumb, although don't be surprised and share their stories and you talk about it and those stories get shared Mm -hmm. and say, boy, you know, if she can share her story, I can share mine. And then what does that do? It gives everybody permission. So that's a great place to start.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense if the people at the top of the organization are sharing their stories. Um, I can imagine that would make the employees feel more secure in their roles and not afraid of losing their jobs or having any sort of negative consequences if they share theirs. That's really great. And that's a great um, anecdote you shared there as well. So I think that this kind of wraps up our conversation about anxiety at work. I think that I want to save everything else for... Our keynote address here next month, because I'm sure there's so much more to learn, so much more to talk about. I'm really excited about it. I guess to wrap things up, I have a couple rapid fire questions. But before that, are there any other um, anything else you want to touch on about anxiety work? Either a message to CHROs, you or a message to employees, you at a more entry level, mid level career stage.
0: Sure. First and foremost, I, I'm a huge fan of CHROs. You know, I think that you are the keepers of the flame. You know, when it comes to what's our, what are our, our our values? What's our mission? What's our vision? You know, you are the keepers of that flame. And you're the ones that look out for your employees to make sure that it's safe. So first and foremost, thank you for choosing this profession and, and doing it so well. I mean, you're a CHRO. Well done, right? Um, the other thing is, Never discount the power and the impact of simple kindness. You know, I mentioned to you earlier in all our work, the common thread through great leaders and teams and organizations is gratitude. In anxiety at work, we we talk about eight strategies to help you deal with uncertainty, ambiguity, overload, and 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 get things done and help you to get things done. Right, At the end of the day, we've got we, we've got to stay in business. We got to get stuff done. Well, the eighth strategy is gratitude you can't hold two emotions at the same time you can't be in a state of anxiety and a state of gratitude so if you have a choice (laughs) choose gratitude uh, over anxiety so as you're putting together your strategies and your plans never discount the impact and the power of random acts of kindness of, of gratitude of empathy it's a better way to lead your organizations you can still be very demanding and still lead with gratitude. Don't think that it's one of those soft skills that if you have it, people take advantage of you. That's absolutely not true. Some of the most extraordinary leaders we've ever met have been the most demanding and yet had the most loyalty and and engagement with their employees because they led with gratitude, right? So not only is it a better way to lead and a better strategy to put together a great culture, it's a better way to live. You know, people that live with gratitude and put it in the center of the way they lead and the way they live, Have better lives, and we've got the data to prove it. So that's that's my sermon. You know, I'm known as the apostle of appreciation. So Haley, you know, that's that's your sermon for the day. Can I get an amen?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amen. That was so great. So two quick rapid fire questions, and I haven't prepared you for either of these. First thing, because you mentioned earlier in this interview that if you're Canadian, the most important thing is to know who your hockey team is. So as a hockey fan, I'm wondering, who is your team?
0: So I grew up with the Vancouver Canucks, right? Because I live in Vancouver. I mean, I'm old enough that I remember when we got our NHL team, it was such a big deal, right? So I grew up a Canucks fan. Well, I've lived in, in New Jersey and the East Coast for you know, over 30 years now. My team is the New Jersey Devils. And I am a diehard Devils fan. I'd probably go to 15, 20 games a year. And while we are not doing well right now, Kaylee, I will been, we are building for a remarkable future. So My team, New Jersey Devils.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, you guys have PK Subban now. So I (laughs) think you're in a really good spot for sure.
0: So who's your team? Who's your hockey team? You're a fan.
1: Nashville Predators.
0: Nashville Predators. Yeah, we got PK from Nashville, in fact. Yeah.
1: It was a little upsetting, but it's fine. We'll get over it. And then to reel back in our non-hockey fans, what is your favorite Saying, I feel like you
0: probably have a lot of them. Yeah, you know, um, I do have a favorite. Thank you for asking. That. And I do, I have a bunch. In fact, I'm in my home office. i I've got them all plastered on the <laughs> on the walls around me. One of my favorites uh, is by a guy named uh, David McKay, David O. McKay. And I remember as a kid, my dad had me memorize this wonderful philosopher, uh, a leader in in our faith. He said, you know, that no success in business can ever compensate for failure in your home. And I think that speaks to CHROs in particular. You know, we talk about work-life balance or work-life harmony or work-life progression, whatever you wanna, this, this idea that there's, there's more to life than an 80-hour work week, right? That, there, that we work for a reason. And, and for, for many of us, it's how do we support our families, whether it's our, our parents or our kids or extended family that this idea that that work can be really meaningful and satisfying if you keep it in perspective. You know, Adrian and I do a lot of executive coaching. And it's really interesting that um, you can have phenomenally successful executives that don't have great personal lives. They've sacrificed way too much Mm -hmm. to get what at the end of the day. So yeah, one of my favorite sayings of all time is, No success in business can ever compensate for failure in your home. Make sure you're taking care of yourself and the people that mean the most to you. And by the way, you can still have a phenomenally successful career. Enjoy the journey. Yeah.
1: I think that is the perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Chester, for joining us. Really excited to have you uh, join us for our Transformational Human Resources Assembly next month and have a great rest of your day.
0: Can't wait. I'll see you there. Take care, Kaylee.
1: Thanks for listening. Subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.